Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. We wanted to start off the episode with just a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, If you're at all sensitive to imagery or discussions of imagery that are um, overtly sexual in nature, uh, this might be an episode that you want to uh, skip over. Um, What we're going to be talking about today is Japanese erotica. And in order to help us do that, we have a very special guest with us. Um, Our guest is Maggie Mustard, who is a PhD candidate in the art history program at Columbia University and a dear friend of both of ours. And she's actually an expert in Japanese art. That's what she's um, working on for her dissertation. In addition to being generally very awesome, Maggie is also the inaugural teaching fellow at the New Museum here in New York City. So if you ever come through New York and go to the New Museum, uh, you'll be very lucky to be able to take one of her tours. So welcome, Maggie, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. I'm so glad to be here. Part of our motivation for choosing this topic was the fact that, uh, well, it's not quite uh, February anymore, but we started thinking about this in February, which is the month of Valentine's Day. So we were sort of searching around for topics that were of a loving or erotic nature. And this was something that Tina brought up that I honestly knew absolutely nothing about. And boy, have my eyes been opened to a new brand of visual culture. (laughs) Well, Sarah, in my defense, um, part of my knowledge of this material relates to a really fascinating class that I took as an undergraduate. I had to take a class um, basically in the field of of anthropology in order to satisfy a kind of um, social sciences distribution requirement. And I decided to take a class on the history of Tokyo. Um, And so I um, was really lucky that I studied with a professor who um, wanted to present the history of Tokyo in a very multifaceted manner, you know, looking at um, the, the, not only the political history and the economic history, but also um, the visual history. So that was my introduction to this material, but I'm very excited that now we have a real expert to talk to us more about it today. The field of Japanese erotica is actually of great historical interest and of art historical interest and also is a pretty big field of of visual culture and material. So uh, Maggie, can you just get us um, sort of oriented and and guide us into this this field that we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're totally right. Um, Erotica within the history of Japanese art is a very wide-ranging variety of both sort of media um, and of sort of historical time periods. Um, We have evidence that there was erotic artists going as far back as the medieval period. Um, And of course, it continues today, (laughs) even into the contemporary era. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, but there is there is a time period, I think, in particular that, you know, some of our listeners might already actually be aware of where erotic art and sort of popular culture and popular art in general all intersect in a really interesting way. And it's um, a period that is known as the Edo period. It's a historical period, but it's also really important um, in terms of the formation of certain art forms, um, one of which uh, happens to be. 
um, a really sort of like flourishing period of erotic art. Um, so in order to talk about this particular form of erotic art in the history of Japanese art, you have to sort of know a little bit about why this period is so interesting. Um, so the Edo period is um, a long, a pretty long period in the history um, of Japan as a country. It's about 250 years or so. It ranges from about 1600 to 1868. Um, and what's interesting about it is it's a period of really interesting and sort of rapid sociopolitical and economic changes. It's also really sort of singular because of the fact that Japan is actually physically closed off to the rest from the rest of the world for about 200 years. Um, but during this period of what's called sakoku or like sort of closed off uh, country, it's internally sort of flourishing um, because uh, compared to sort of the previous centuries, it's a period of relative peace. Um, the government is pretty well centralized. Um, it's pretty rigorous in the way that it kind of manifests control over its citizenry. Um, and it's also a period in which urban centers um, like the city of Edo, which we know is modern day Tokyo. Um, but cities like Edo are growing really massively. People are moving in from the countrysides and are sort of centering themselves um, in these urban centers that are growing really quickly and really, really um, in dynamic ways. They are not just centers of power or industry, but also they sort of become centers of popular culture as well. So one of the results from this sort of massive explosion in urban culture is actually the development of a kind of like an entirely new class um, of, and they're primarily merchant class. They're called chonin. Um, and you could, I guess like, the, you know, as an, as a kind of example in Western culture, you could think of them as sort of like new money, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have a disposable income. They have pretty, they have some travel allowances within the country, although limited, but they do have some, um, and they're actually relatively educated. And during this time period, they're actually on sort of the lowest rung of like the ladder of social classes in Japan at this time period, like the top, you have aristocracy, samurai, right? Farmers, artisans, that kind of thing. At the very bottom, you have the chonin, the merchants. They're actually the most wealthy um, and the most well-connected class of people at this time period. And the merchant class um, is both the sort of generator of popular culture within the urban environment during this time um, in terms of like things that they're interested in. So they're interested in kabuki plays, going to tea houses, um, reading folk tales. They're interested in uh, frequenting the pleasure quarters, right? Visiting courtesans. Um, but they're also then the intended audience for the art forms that begin to represent these kinds of idealized spaces of like pleasure and fantasy and entertainment. Um, and all of these ideas about what this sort of idealized world of entertainment looks like um, becomes known as the floating world or ukiyo-e. It seems like this is actually not that dissimilar from um, some of what happened in the history of Western Europe in terms of, you know, rise of urban centers, a concentration of population, a sort of redistribution of wealth to people who were formerly on the sort of lower end of the socioeconomic bracket who then have to display their wealth and their privilege and their prestige through the consumption of luxury objects, right? So, so it's really interesting that there's a, a similar parallel there. 
Yeah, but what you're talking about is interesting also because it's you're, you you said that the Edo period begins in the 17th century, right? And we usually see that um, situate that happening in Western Europe, in Britain, and France in the late 18th and early 19th century. So in this effort to sort of decentralize Europe as the primary power in the world, uh, we can see this this happening, you know, far outside the boundaries of Europe, well before um, well before that happens there. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, there are definitely similarities in the way that this sort of like organization of sort of social classes and the creation of popular culture work together, I think sort of globally. But um, while the Edo period does sort of, I mean, physically get started in the 1600s, it does take a while for these sort of cultures to develop. So the time period that we'll be talking about in terms of like kind of a golden age of ukiyo-e um, and of the floating world and of the erotica sort of associated with that doesn't really get going fully until like the eight sort of um, 18th century for okay. sure. With industrialization in places like Britain and France in the late 18th and early 19th century, one of the results of that is um, the industrialization of the print process. And so you have um, just an absolute immense output of, of print culture. And it's something that um, we haven't talked about to great, uh, to, to a great extent in, in episodes in the past. And, and part of the reason I think it's great to, that we have Maggie on here is that it gives us an opportunity to talk about this particular form of print culture. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the types of, of prints that were um, created in this, this period about printmaking in, in the Edo period? Yeah, I mean, that's the most important thing about ukiyo-e, which is sort of pictures of this floating world, is that it's not exclusively print culture, but it is um, predominantly print culture. And that's sort of one of the most important characteristics about it. So um, in Japan at this point, even though it's not the kind of um, print culture that we see in the West at a similar, it's sort of contemporaneously, um, these are woodblock prints. So um that means that even though it might not be fully industrialized in the way that we think about it in the West, they're still mass reproducible images. And that's the most important characteristic of them. They can be easily um, reproduced in a high number of runs. Um, they can be reproduced even if the artist is dead, say, which also happens quite a bit. Um, and they can be easily per purchased um, by members predominantly of the merchant class just like books, right, which are also at this point in Japan incredibly popular, and they're also done via the woodblock print method. Um, and they sort of, because of their sort of mass availability and mass circulation, um, they very easily permeate this kind of visual popular culture of the day. Um, as an example, like what would be the opposite of that in Japan at this time period? Like think about your accessibility to like a mass reproduced image, like a woodblock print, if you're just like Joe Merchant on the street versus like your access to like an ink painting that is commissioned by a rich warlord that only lives on the ceiling of a temple outside of Kyoto, right? So your access to these images is so much more enriched by the sort of use of this particular medium. It's kind of like if you were or making a comparison between having a photographic per portrait versus a painted portrait. It's a little different. I mean, there's still some uh, craftsmanship, some technical skill that goes into making a woodblock print, but just in terms of reproducibility and uh, and inexpensiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And like by the point that, you know, by the sort of like early 1800s, 
you have such a variety and sort of the, the kinds and varieties of print that you can get. I mean, some of these prints are done with incredibly luxury materials. They're done in super limited runs. They're done by super famous artists. Um, and then you have just the sort of black and white commas, almost sort of like broad streets that are also available. Um, so this is like a really, really popular form of sort of visual literature that exists on the streets of Edo, Kyoto, like major urban cities in Japan by the, mid by the sort of beginning of the 19th century. It's everywhere. We've established that there's this uh, emerging field of, of prints that are um, a popular visual culture. And you've mentioned that there is a, a particular subfield of the prints that are devoted to um, images of pleasure, the ukiyo-e images. So what kinds of things are we looking at when we're looking at ukiyo-e prints? What kinds of things would be depicted? Yeah, so the subjects of sort of images of the floating world or of ukiyo-e are all, you know, there's a wide variety of them, but very generally it's beautiful women, um, often courtesans, often like actual real famous courtesans of the day. Um, we also have classic folk tales that are often sort of like updated into modern settings, um, sort of like setting like, I don't know, like the Pied Piper in like 2016. Um, we have modern day superstars, so like sumo wrestlers, um, kabuki actors, those are the most famous um, sort of like superstars of the Edo period. And then we also have erotica because of course if there's images of something there's going to be porn of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's not like just the general, internet that's made for porn it's, it's not uh... just it's all all creative industry um, <laughs> so there's actually a whole genre of ukiyo-e prints that um kind of align with a form of erotic art that kind of previously existed but never was nearly as popular as it was in this time period so it's called shunga um s-h-u-n-g-a and it means spring pictures and spring, like the, the word spring, is one of many, many poetic euphemisms for sex that is used um, during the Edo period. Um, so kind of like in English. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like language is really lovely that way. Um, and they do. And also, I have to say, like in the Edo period, they're like, re they really, really love their puns visual or otherwise. So um, shunga also literally means like sex pictures, even though the character that's used for it in Japanese is spring. Um, so the, the sort of genre of shunga did exist from the medieval period onwards, but it really only does begin to flourish in popularity and quantity during the Edo period, um, which is again due to the merchant class and the increasing quantity and sort of like ease of producing these prints. Um, interestingly, there are records from booksellers during this period, because um, they did keep really good records, that Shunga was absolutely enjoyed by men and women alike, and from a variety of classes. Even though it was predominantly the merchant class, we have records of everyone from samurai to sort of like Joe Schmo off the street, um, sort of purchasing um, well-known albums or collections of Shunga um, during the Edo period. So that's really fascinating. There was like no social interdiction, no no um, sense that it wouldn't be proper for a woman or for a high class person to look at the stuff. It was really just like everybody gets their porn. Actually, there were people that had problems with it and it was predominantly the government. Um, there were a series of edicts passed throughout the Edo period of sorting sort of like varying efficacy that had within them um, sort of decency laws. And a couple of them were really effective in terms of like, like making sure that publishers had to censor these things or couldn't even um, publish them in the first place. But of course, because um, 
human beings are very industrious. Um, <laughs> most of these people found ways to get around even the most strict of edicts. So even with some of the most um, sort of powerful government censorship in place at certain periods during um, the Edo historical period, I mean, porn persisted. So in other words, it was the kind of situation where sort of everybody knows you're not supposed to do it, but everyone does it anyway. So it's not like you could, you know, get like, you know, capital punishment for being discovered with, you know, an erotic image, right? It's sort of like you're not supposed to do it, but everybody does anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like most sim- sort of like simply, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. What was the punishment if you got caught with this stuff? Uh, I mean, it was supposed to be pretty harsh. I mean, in general, the people that would get punished was largely the sort of publishing houses. Like Mm. the production of woodblock prints um, is like a sort of, it's a real collaborative thing. Um, So you have everybody from the artist that designs the prints who are usually the brand name, right? So they're the famous name that gets attached to the print. But then you have carvers that are so specialized by a certain point that you have people that are... um, just hired to carve sort of like the hair on a courtesan's head because they're super good at it versus like somebody who's hired to carve like the gradient of a sky. Um, so you have really, really special, highly specialized labor. And then you also have the publishing houses, the sort of booksellers, the distributors. So it's a really, really kind of in- complex and intricate network. Um, but the, the brunt of the censorship laws fell largely like on the head of the publishing house. At this point, I think it would be pretty helpful to actually look at one of these images uh, in the concrete with you. And I I think probably the most famous example of this that comes to mind that some of our listeners might actually already be familiar with is uh, an image that's known as the dream of the fisherman's wife. So um, do you want to walk us through this a little bit? Yeah. um, So when Tina and I were originally talking about this episode as a background, we did have like a very brief conversation about tentacle erotica in particular as being something that sort of came out of Japan. And I immediately thought of this image um, because in some ways it's um, people think of it at least as one of the first uh, visual instances in which we see tentacles and naked ladies together in a kind of erotic uh, entanglement. So this image is from 1814. It's a woodblock print by Hokusai. And uh, you might know him as the artist behind The Great Wave, which is, of course, I, w- I mean, I don't, I don't think it's even arguable to say that's maybe one of the most famous images to ever come out of Japan. Um, he was an incredibly popular artist, painter, and printmaker, um, and poet as well. And this is from, this particular image um, is from a publication, so it's actually like an album that he made of erotic images um, called Kinue no Komatsu, which means um, young pines. The image itself is actually kind of like, a, it's a, it's a two spread, it's like a two page spread. Um, think of it like you've opened a book, because um, actually this was in an, in an album originally. So um, across the page, sort of across the, the centerfold, if you will, um, we have a young woman um, who is nude sort of reclining on a bed of seaside rocks covered in seaweed and seashells and abalone and some little sea urchins even. Um, And so this reclining woman is having an encounter um, with two octopi. One is very large and one is very small. And the encounter they're having is explicitly sexual in nature. So we have the larger octopus sort of... um, its tentacles are sort of wrapped around her whole body and between her spread legs, 
this octopus is performing cunnilingus. And then we also have a smaller baby octopus um, who's sort of at the top on the left-hand side of the image um, by the woman's um, sort of tilted back head. This baby octopus or this smaller octopus is, it looks like a very awkward French kiss, but it's (laughs) inserting its beak into her mouth while sort of caressing her body with its little tentacles as well. With one and then little around, tentacle around her nipple. One little very particular tentacle around her nipple. And I mean, what is not maybe readily apparent from the description is that this is really not at all like a, a sort of violent like um, rape scene. Like she has her head tilted back and her eyes closed and her mouth open, but she's um, clearly like all of that is communicating some sort of ecstasy. Um, and actually, I just noticed that her, with both hands, mm-hmm. she's grabbing on to two different arms of the octopus, you know. Um, so, you know, and she, she's not grabbing on to try to push him off. It's quite clear. She's, like, grabbing on, like, you know, because um, she's, like, you know, on for the ride, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is, I mean, you bring up such an interesting point because what's crazy about this image is that, like, obvious, I see it the same way, that this woman is not necessarily, she's definitely enjoying herself. But what's crazy about it was the initial reception in the West, at least, of this image was that this woman was definitely being raped by an octopus. This was like a violating, violent act. And like early Western scholars of this image like couldn't see around the fact that this, like they couldn't possibly deal with the fact that this might be cons- kind of consensual. Um, and only recent scholarship on this image actually has sort of recategorized it in a different way where it might be about a kind of like female receiving pleasure Um, it's interesting to think about why that might be. I think a lot of it might have to do with the sort of like inherent sort of discomfort with the fact that it's kind of a beat, like it's a bestiality act. I mean, in Ukiyo-e, like these are spaces of fantasy. They're always spaces of fantasy. And that's sort of what's so amazing about them is that they're meant to be funny and sexy and interesting and scintillating and also be a little bit perverse, both on the act of like kind of subverting the original material, which we can definitely talk about with this image, but also subverting your expectations about what you might find arousing. And that's the whole point of, of like sort of Shunga in the ukiyo genre, I think. Um, and I think that that may have been a little difficult for some of the early Western scholars to understand. Well, not only that, um, but I also wonder if some of the resistance came from the fact that this is, if I'm reading it correctly, really an image about um, female sexual pleasure. And I just think that, you know, um, we and there certainly was a tradition, I think, of representing female sexual pleasure, but that tradition in the West is, you know, is definitely sort of swept under the rug, and we're like not the comfortable. Naughty nun that we saw like, in the last episode, exactly like the naughty nun, you know, um, uh, harvesting the penis tree. You know, like we're just so uncomfortable with those images even today. Um, so I, I wonder if that also had something to do with the the problems of the historical reception of this work. So even if you look at the text surrounding the image, um, you can tell that this woman is enjoying herself. She's not resisting. The text is basically like a, a hum- it's sort of a dialogue between the octopus, octopi, both of them are talking, um, and the woman. And the octopus is saying um, some dirty things, and the lady is responding, 
And at, like, this is all based on a, on a folk tale um, of which I can tell you more about. But the octopus is basically saying, you know, after I'm done enjoying this, I'm going to take this lady back to the palace of the dragon king or the sort of the dragon lord. And the lady's like, I'm having such a nice time. I mean, she's, it's mostly, it's like most, it's mostly a transcription of sex noises. If I'm totally honest. <laughs> Um, and so, like, the point is, like, I think Hokusai, like, really wanted to make you laugh at the same time that he wanted to kind of, like, maybe arouse or pique your interests a little bit. Um, that's what the best shunga and the best ukiyo-e does of this period. Does this fit within, a, I mean, you said that the, the octopi want to bring her back to the dragon lord. Does this fit into a larger narrative, into a larger folktale, or is this kind of um, a standalone event? Yeah, so we definitely think based on this one quote from the octopus, but also based on sort of like a pre-existing set of imagery that are sort of similar to this, that this image is actually based on a on a folktale that's very old. It comes from the medieval period. Um, but this was a popular thing that people did in the Edo period where they would sort of revisit older folktales and kind of reinvent them a little bit. Um, so this um, is, we think, a depiction of a very popular story um, call, about uh, a princess named Tamatori. And she's actually, at the beginning of the story, a young shell diver. We call them ama. Um, and they're actually female, like, pearl divers. They dive for abalone. And there's still some that are alive in Japan today. Um, so this, the, the sort of short version of this story is that Princess Tamatori gets married to a very powerful courtier of the Fujiwara clan. And um, in order to steal back a pearl that has been stolen from her, her husband's family, she she dives into the ocean to steal the pearl back from the dragon god that lives under the ocean that has stolen it from his from her husband. In the original story, um, the ama diver or Tamatori, she retrieves the pearl successfully from the lair of the dragon god, um, but then is pursued by an army of the dragon god's creatures, so like sea creatures, and eventually the visual narrative definitely turns some of these sort of members of the sea ocean army into octopi. Um, so he, so the dragon God sends this army after her. And in order to hide the pearl, Tamatori cuts open one of her breasts and she hides the pearl inside it. And because of this, she's able to make it to the surface safely where she, her husband is waiting for her on a boat with all of his clan and they, you know, they get the pearl, but then she dies in his arms, sort of from her self-inflicted wound, um, wound. And this element of the folktale, I mean, the, folk, the original story is sort of largely seen as a very moralizing Buddhist parable, right, about the self-sacrificing virtue of women. Um, so what's really interesting, what Hokusai has done here is sort of subvert the sort of like Mm-hmm. the virtue of women right into a, a like a, a a very interesting sort of act of receiving pleasure and because this is something that happened a lot in this time period they would take some of the most um formative moralizing popular buddhist parables um or folk tales and deliberately pervert them in more ways than one right mm-hmm. um and it works because people would know these stories they'd know the motifs and the imagery um, particularly, say, people of the Chonin class, they are well-educated enough that we, they would know these sort of, like, cues to very popular folk tales, And they would get the multiple levels of these jokes. Um, so they would get that this is a very scintillating, erotic image that's really original and, like, really interesting and maybe a little bit perverse. But they would also get the fact that it's, like, extra 
perverse because it's sort of perverting this religious moralizing tale. I just wonder, since you said that they're so into wordplay, I wonder if there's the same association of Pearl um, with uh, parts of the female anatomy, because it seems to me like the larger octopus is definitely enjoying her Pearl right now. Well, not just um, Pearls, but octopus. I mean... Oh, yeah. No, there is. I mean, there's so much wordplay. Like, for awabi, or the word for abalone, or the sort of like the the shell um, is also a... um, is like a sort of, is a euphemism for female genitalia as well. Um, Not just in this time period, but going very, very far back. I'm so glad that you, when you initially saw this, you were like, she's not, this isn't like a violation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think it's so readily available via the way that Hokusai has depicted this. It's so weird to me that anybody would think of this as like, I mean, I guess it's just the sort of bestial element, right? But like... She's grabbing his tentacles, but the rest of her body is, like, totally relaxed. It's totally supine. Yeah. Um, And there's also, like, this strange, like, loving embrace of the baby tentacle around her shoulders. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also really interesting because, you know, I think some of the cues visually in the tradition of Japanese visual culture, especially in woodblock prints versus, like, say, maybe Western erotica, um, they don't rely as heavily on sort of, like, say, facial cues. Um, and in fact, there's a long tradition of within Shunga of sort of overemphasizing, literally physically exaggerating genitalia um, rather than show pleasure on the face because the genitalia was seen as sort of like a second face. Um, so there's this sort of like emphasis on the, the octopi's kind of it's sort of in between humanoid and animal or sort of like humanoid and sea creature, um, the sort of like the bringing together of those two faces, I think is done really deliberately. Um, And it's like not a very common, I mean, there's nothing about this image that is particularly common. It's very, very unusual um, in a lot of different respects, but there's a reason that it's so popular. You mentioned that um, this is an unusual depiction or unusual depiction of this scene. So can you talk about, you know, other varieties of this type of imagery, you know, other varieties that you'd find in this genre or other kinds of depictions of this particular uh, scene that people would have been familiar with prior to this point. Yeah. So it's not unusual in the sense that like nobody had, nobody prior to Hokusai thought about sexualizing an encounter between an octopus and a lady, like believe it or not, that had been done before. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) Hokusai really brings it, I mean, sort of to forgive the term to its sort of climax um, (laughs) in many ways in terms of like, it's both in the sort of quality of the print and the sort of composition of it and the, and the sort of general composition and the focus on the female pleasure, I think in particular is also really unique. Um, But prior to this, there's, so as I mentioned, this is a really popular story, the story of Tamatori and um, it throughout the tradition of, ukiyo-e um starting from as early as the early 1600s this is represented in print um as well as other ama divers um and they're sort of seen increasingly as kind of these sexually available because of their sort of rural quality um they're sort of seen as sexually available kind of passionate um wild erotic even female figures so they increasingly become eroticized throughout the history of ukiyo-e and shunga and so there is one of the earlier versions we have of like a sort of fully sexualized encounter between this octopus and tamatori is this print from 1781 um, by shigemasa kitao 
who is, it comes from actually a book of images that he did where he eroticizes various um, sort of like no opera dramas. Um, so he's taking all this super self-serious theater and turning it into like sexy erotica. Um, so this is, he's doing a version of a Tomatori related no drama in this image. Um, and what's different about this image, which comes earlier than Hokusai's, is that you have more of the story. So you have, um, you have Tomatori and the octopus engaged in not cunnilingus, but full coitus, which is really different than Hokusai's, um, in the middle of the two pages. But then off to the top left of the image, you see um, Tomatori's husband, the member of the Fujiwara clan, in the boat sort of waiting for her. So he's sort of being cuckolded, right, <laughs> to the top um, left-hand side of the image. Um, so we have more clues in this earlier image to the sort of like um, context of the sort of fullness of this original sort of serious drama. But at the center of it, um, Shigemasa has in sort of um, created this erotic tangle of octopus and lady. And Maggie, the fact that the the scene is sort of abstracted or extracted out of the narrative in Hakusai's version, how do you think that impacts the reception of it? This was a kind of a common thing that happened by the sort of early to mid 19th century because some of these images and motifs were so well known by a certain class of artists and merchants and people that enjoyed um, especially the quality version of these images, it was kind of a coy wink. So you didn't have to actually, believe it or not, be explicit about your source material, right? You could <laughs> instead be explicit about the ways that you were kind of playing around with it to sort of show more of your skill, both as an artist, but also as a kind of intellectual. Um, so in terms of reception, I think it actually makes it a more full and interesting and kind of like uh, an image that's full of signs and puzzles. And the idea is if you're in on the joke, you're one of us, right? If you can really fully plumb the depths of what this image is about and get all the connections, um, you have more of a full experience with it. So in some ways it makes it much more than just pornography. In other words, it seems that the image is, is serving sort of two functions at the same time. It's both sexually titillating, but it's also um, kind of validating the erudition and the acculturation of the the viewer that basically the viewer gets to say wow I'm so sophisticated and so smart that I get what's going on here yeah absolutely and I think part of that's part of the joy of of enjoying this kind of image is that yeah it's might be physically arousing or scintillating or sexy but it's also part of your culture and it's part of the sort of like ongoing conversation of images that sort of um, form the network of a world of entertainment and pleasure around you. Um, and it's also really important to note that the artists that are doing these prints aren't porn artists. They're, they're the most important artists of the time who are doing woodblock prints. So Hokusai, famous for the Great Wave, right? One of the most important artists of the, of the Edo period, um, also did a lot of shunga. Um, other artists, the biggest names in woodblock prints, they all did erotic art. Um, part of it is it's probably really fun to do because <laughs> you get to play around with some of these ideas. And um, 
obviously the human body is really fun to play with as an artist. I think that that uh, sort of crosses cultures. Um, and as you mentioned, everybody's going to buy porn, so well, you're going to make money off of it. <laughs> that's the other thing. It's guaranteed bestseller, right? Like you're always going to have a buyer for the shunga. And that's a hugely important part of it. I mean, yeah, these are professional artists that now we regard really highly within the tradition of image making in Japan. But at the time, I mean, they were just trying to make a living. Um, so one way to definitely be able to feed your family um, is through erotica because you know it's gonna sell really well. So I'm actually um, really interested in the sort of slippage of terminology because we've been calling it erotica, but as you've just established, you know, this stuff is is being made by sort of the, the most well-established, well-known and well-respected quote-unquote fine artists of the time. So this is really foreign from, um, or maybe it's not. I wonder, I was gonna say this is really foreign from how we operate today because we think of like pornog like filmic pornography um, or even like pornographic magazines as being produced by photographers and filmmakers whose, you know, whose artistry we don't really respect. Um, but I, I say that and then I wonder because I think of how many like um, avant-garde films actually have explicit, you know, uh, explicit sexual encounters. And just off the top of my head, the one thing I can think of is Last Tango in Paris, which like has not only erotic imagery, <laughs> but like the kind of erotic imagery that will scar you for life. Um, and in fact, ruined the lead actress's career forever and ever. Um, and yet, you know, that's like a perfectly legitimate, like, you know, fine art film to watch. It reminds me of, as I've been looking into this stuff, it's it's been reminding me a lot of an episode of a show I love called Coupling, um, where uh, one of the characters, one of the male characters, uh, it's discovered that he watches porn, and uh, they have this, at a dinner party, this, uh, this whole long discussion about uh, what makes porn and what makes erotica, and they have him describe this, what had been called a porn film, uh, in... In, in a context that would make it seem more like erotica. And it was through uh, language that was of a more elevated discourse that was what put it potentially into the realm of erotica as opposed to porn. So it's it's this, like you say, it's like the slippery discourse. Where is the line? And, and it's, it's, it's always fluid. It's fluid in every culture. Yeah, no, even what Tina was saying about sort of the the slippage in contemporary, um, even like fashion photography in particular, I think of someone like Terry Richardson, um, where it's sort of all in the eye of the beholder in terms of like whether his imagery is fashion forward and avant-garde or is just sort of like straight vulgarity um, or, or whether Newton. it's, or Helmut Newton even right at the time. And I think you're right. Or Robert Maplethorpe. Or Maplethorpe. Right? Or Sally Man. <laughs> Sally Man. <laughs> Turns out the exceptions might actually be the rule. But, yeah. Right. Okay. But I, yeah, I think you're right that this slippage always exists. And it, with this particular art form, it, it's interesting because ukiyo-e in and of itself sort of operates in a kind of liminal space between high and quote-unquote low art. Um, it's definitely a form of popular culture during the time period, um, but that's that's a sort of a term that we're imposing on it from our sort of modern and largely Western points of view. Um, and you know, it it has it has as an 
art form or as a form of sort of like cultural expression that is being studied by the scholarly community, it's only recently been received as something sort of like worthy, really, of being studied in its own right. So, so can you give us some examples of that? Like what's the scholarship look like? Or, you know, where, where are people seeing this material crossing over into the sort of more mainstream discourse of art history? Yeah, I mean, in the early 20th century, when uh, the Western world was literally discovering Japanese art, <laughs> um, there was, you know, nobody was considering ukiyo-e. In fact, like, prints were used as packing um, material to send paintings and other sort of more valuable um, objects that were worthy of study over to the West. Um, there's lots of sort of like apocryphal narratives about that's how they got discovered. <laughs> um, but I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> true. Oh, In fact, you see like you see ukiyo-e becoming more popular with co Western collectors after World War II, um, and especially after the Vietnam War, which is for, kind of for obvious reasons, um, that there's a lot of um, uh, Western soldiers being stationed over in Eastern and Southeast Asia, and some of them go into collecting honestly, and there's just more of a conversation happening between um, these two sort of like spheres of the art world. Um, so it's really only post-1960 that you see any interest in studying ukiyo-e in a scholarly community, um, and really much later than that, honestly. Like collecting starts usually in the 70s in, Amer in America, I would say, of woodblock prints. And then in the scholarly community, you see a kind of like conflation with scholars that are interested in studying more popular culture elements um, alongside a resurgence or like a, an actual um, interest in studying woodblock prints as a form of um, art making at the same time. I would have to imagine that there is among some communities resistance to the uh, recuperation of these images as high art. Is that something that you know, are there examples of, of resistance to these images in, you know, exhibitions and scholarship and popular literature in the West? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, in particular, the Shunga, like sort of subgenre sub of erotica has had to fight really hard or people have fought really hard for it with sort of limited success. Um, just even the subgenre of it being... Um, something that you can put in a museum exhibition. So it was only recently, it was just two, three, almost three years ago now, the British Museum had its first show ever of just erotic Shunga art. Um, and it was a little bit controversial. And, you know, if you look at the catalog, a lot of the essays are sort of devoted towards explaining why this is so important to study. And it's, it's definitely a kind of conversation about convincing a public that might be skeptical that what you're seeing isn't just straight porn, it has sort of like merits outside of that um, that are worthy of study. And it teaches us something about this community, about this time period, about this culture, um, and about sort of ourselves. And I wonder if, if you could explain a little bit about how you see it relating to um, not contemporary art historical discourse, but contemporary Japanese popular culture. So, you know, I think, um, you know, everyone, uh, especially our age or younger, who grew up with like shows like the Power Rangers on TV or with like <laughs> Pokemon or whatever, is aware that there is this um, really vibrant um, Japanese visual culture um, of manga and anime. 
and that there is a very large um, uh, subset of that that is erotic in nature or explicitly pornographic in nature. Um, so it, can you see any kind of uh, direct lineage or, you know, I don't know, what's the, what's the connection? Is there one? Yeah, I mean, lots of people have argued that there's sort of a direct through line all the way from, say, Hokusai to the most contemporary anime and manga that are present in Japanese popular culture. I mean, I think more like anything, it's more complicated than that. But, you know, as a general rule, we do credit Hokusai, um, our fisherman, dream of the fisherman's wife friend, with publishing um, a group of images that he first called manga. Um, in around the same time as actually the dream of the fisherman's wife around 1814. And the word manga actually just means sort of like whimsical pictures um, or sort of like fun pictures. Um, in terms of like a very, like a very direct connection between sort of the erotica um, subset of uh, Japanese popular culture and sort of what we are seeing in Shunga, I think there is like a similar relationship between the two. Um, but it also develops from its sort of own time period. And I'm certainly not an expert in any way on Japanese pornography, <laughs> like a contemporary way. Um, Are there experts on Japanese? <laughs> I mean, maybe I not mean, in art history, maybe in other you, fields. Do you want, yeah, maybe in other fields. Um, <laughs> but you can see, see sort of like similar things happening in terms of way, like the ways that certain um, ideas and subgenres like develop, I think. Um, so, like, even just thinking about the idea of tentacle erotica existing in a contemporary and modern sense, which we all knew, know it sort of does, <laughs> especially in the Japanese context, um, people have tried to draw a direct line from Hokusai's Dream of the Fisherman's Wife to modern tentacle porn, if you can call it that. And it, I don't know if you can necessarily do that, but what is really interesting is that it was censorship laws, we think, that... Um, made actually the first like sort of 20th century version of this kind of pornography. So in the early 20th century, Japan uh, sort of re rewrote a lot of its constitution. And one of the things it had in place in a very Victorian way was a lot of sort of decency and censorship laws. Um, those got rewritten after World War II. After World War II is when the manga culture really starts to take off. And those decency and censorship laws stay in place all the way through the 80s. And they're kind of like esoteric and like a little bit weird in terms of like what you can and can't do in terms of pornography. Like pornography is allowed, but the weird thing is you can't show any visible genitalia or pubic hair. Which so there two, is in this Hokusai yeah. image for sure. Right, exactly. So in the 20th century, this becomes like a no-no and it's really hard to publish or produce pornography that has these elements in it. So you get a lot of like little censorship bars that over images that sort of like half cover the thing. Um, you get no pubic hair. Um, but this one artist at, uh, in the sort of mid-80s, I think it is, his name is um, Maeda Toshio, um, comes up with like kind of an ingenious way to get around these censorship laws where he realizes like the problem is that there's like a penis and a vagina in the image. What if you like take away the penis and make it a tentacle? Like then the censorship laws <laughs> don't apply because it's not right. actually a, like a, a human genitalia. Right, so, the rule wasn't about a phallus or a phallic-like object. It was, you know. 
It's a, it's literally a about penis. Exactly. And vagina. Exactly. Right. So he gets around it and he makes he becomes really popular for sort of doing these grotesque kind of strange, I mean, very strange, not kind of strange, like strange, um, like relationships between women and non-human figures. So the tentacle is a big one, he does some robots. Uh, he does some other monsters. So he basically gets, a, and he creates kind of this own, his new genre of like erotica in, in the manga genre, um, where it's sort of, I, you could think of it as a kind of echo of Hokusai. Well, thank you so much, Maggie, for joining us today. Thank you, guys. This was super fun. (laughs) If you would like to take a look at any of the erotic images that we've discussed today, you can find them on our website, which is arthistory.today. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. 